So I would talk to my guys about them being the final decision maker. It starts with the president and works its way all the way down. And they are the final decision maker. When they enter a room or they're behind that scope and they're off safe and their fingers on the trigger, they are the final decision maker in that long chain. A former Navy SEAL and New York Times best-selling author has done it again. Jack Carr drawing on some inspiration from his time on the battlefield, catching the attention of readers everywhere and Hollywood. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Please subscribe and check out some of our past episodes, such as launching the CIA's Contra War in Central America and the first woman to operate with the Navy SEALs, as well as new episodes that are released every week. Our guest today is SEAL Team Leader, Platoon Commander, Troop Commander, Podcaster, Producer, and best-selling author Jack Carr. His number one best-selling thriller series includes The Terminalist, True Believer, Savage Son, The Devil's Hand, and his latest, In the Blood. The Terminalist is now a hit TV series on Amazon Prime, starring Chris Pratt, Constance Wu, and Taylor Kitsch. Like the lead character in his thriller series, Lieutenant Commander James Reese, Jack was once a SEAL sniper who served multiple tours of duty in both Iraq and Afghanistan at the height of the U.S. involvement in both countries. Today, Jack is going to talk about his journey from Navy SEAL to best-selling author and now television producer. And he's going to talk about how he uses the experiences from his deployments in his novels. We're very honored to welcome Navy SEAL and best-selling author Jack Carr as today's Hero Behind the Headlines. It was something that was innate in me from a very early age. I can't remember ever wanting to do anything um, other than write, uh, which came shortly on the heels of uh, wanting to finding out what SEALs were. But uh, I was just grew up with uh, this love of country and to test myself like a lot of, uh, of young people do. And I had this family connection to the military on both sides, but the one that was um, most at the forefront of my mind was my grandfather killed off Okinawa. He was a uh, Corsair pilot, which is the, he was a Marine pilot, but flew with uh, uh, off carriers. And it's the one that had the, the gold. Yeah, Okinawa, that was horrible. Yeah. And near the end of the war in 1945 and, um, and uh, I grew up with the silk maps they used to give aviators back then, because if you had a paper map, you know, and you crash landed in the or crash landed, you crash into the ocean, uh, the paper map would disintegrate in the salt right. water. You have a, a silk map that just gets wet. So I had those. I had his wings. I had pictures of him and his squadron, his medals. And so I, I just had that that kind of a connection to him through those things. And then also through a show that was on in the late 70s, early 80s called Black Sheep Squadron. with. Uh, <laughs> Robert yep. Conrad. Uh, yeah, yeah, Robert Conrad. Yep. Yeah. yeah. My dad and I would watch that, and that was kind of our connection to, to his father, my grandfather. And we'd watch that show together, and I just knew that one day I would join the military. And at age seven, I found out what SEALs were. 
And my mom, librarian, grew up with books and a love of reading. And so we went down to the local library to do some research on what seals were. And as you as you, you may remember, back in the early 80s, there was not that much written on seals in particular. Not at all. But uh, special operations yeah. in general. Now, there were a few a few books out there, uh, but not many. A few mentions in a chapter here or there, a magazine article here or there, but not that much. You could actually read it all. Uh, get down and read it all in a matter of hours, I think. Uh, but uh, but I found out, hey, but my takeaway from that research with my mom was that uh, SEALs were touted as some of the most elite special operators in the world. And the training was some of the toughest ever devised by a modern military. So uh, they had me from age seven. And, uh, you know, once I exhausted all that nonfiction at age seven, eight, nine, um, I found out, well, I started reading the books that my parents were reading. And I was age 10, fifth grade. That's when Hunt for Red October came out by Tom Clancy. And certainly by sixth grade, by age 11, I was reading uh, all those kind of books by uh, David Morrell, who created the character Rambo. Uh, great guy. Yeah. Uh, a book that's never been out of print. Uh, it's 50th anniversary of his publication this past May, uh, reading uh, Nelson DeMille and A.J. Quinnell and J.C. Pollock and Mark Olden and Stephen Hunter and all these guys in the, the 80s who had protagonists with backgrounds in Vietnam. If you, people remember uh, the TV action hero, movie action hero and and uh, thriller action hero in, in novels typically was a SEAL in Vietnam, a special forces guy in Vietnam, a uh, Marine sniper in Vietnam, CIA paramilitary in Vietnam. But there was some foundation in, in combat in Vietnam and then usually to work for the CIA or something like that. Uh, and those were kind of typically the backgrounds for those guys. And I love those books. And I knew that one day after my time in the military, I'd write the same kind of thrillers. So what I was doing was really giving myself an early education in the art of storytelling. Although I didn't Absolutely. look at it that way. I was just enjoying these and thinking, if I'm reading Brotherhood of the Rose by David Morrell, I'm thinking, well, the guy that created Rambo probably did some research in this, in this book. So yes. I'm learning as I'm enjoying the read. And uh, the books by those guys back then, they were just magic. You know, there weren't all the distractions that we have today. There wasn't the social media. There wasn't the internet. That's the best way to learn, I think, to be a writer is to just read. I read. I, I was the same way. I read everything. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, my mom introduced me to uh, "Hero with a Thousand Faces." Joseph uh, Campbell, man. Joseph Campbell. Yeah. yeah. Interviews that he did with Bill Moyers called "The Power of Myth" back in 1988, and I think there was a series of three books that I have in a box around here somewhere uh, that they they uh, they published after that was based on those those interviews. But uh, even back then, I think I was maybe a freshman in high school, maybe eighth grade, something like that. But uh, I remember it. I was I was enthralled because they talked about how uh, "Hero with a Thousand Faces." inspired George Lucas and Star Wars. Right. So, okay, Absolutely. You know, I'm loving that connection. And then I really thought, watched and, uh, and and as I read, I put everything through that filter of the hero's journey, I think. And so from a very early age, I was doing Absolutely. that. So I was incorporated into the reading that I was doing and watching the adaptations or just watching something that's not an adaptation, but just a store, a visual story. Um, so all those things gave me a really solid foundation from which to write. Um, but at the same time, I'm studying my whole life. I'm studying warfare, I'm studying terrorism, insurgencies, counterinsurgencies, because I know that I'm going into the military and uh, I want to be the best leader, best combat leader I can possibly be. And that means study. That means you're a student of warfare. So I'm doing that. And then, of course, after September 11th, we go to Iraq or Afghanistan first and then we go to Iraq and uh, I have a practical uh, experience. I have a practical application of all those things that I've been training to do and studying my whole life. And so all those three things, the all the reading I did as a kid in the genre, the study of academic study of warfare and then the practical experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, that all came together at the right time and place as I was about, I was leaving the military during that last year, year and a half, not taking guys downrange anymore. My job 
essentially becomes to get out of this gigantic bureaucracy uh, of the military. So uh, I started writing and uh, the terminal list was the result. Jack's life path was essentially laid out for him from his love of country, which he derived in part from his grandfather's experience as a pilot in World War II, to his love of books, which he got from his librarian mother. By seven years old, he was already on a path that would lead him to the Navy SEALs, and after that, being a best-selling author. He became a Navy SEAL in the 1990s, and like the rest of us, the events of 9-11 affected him profoundly sending him on a trajectory that would lead to multiple deployments in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, well, that's what we wanted to do. And we've been training up. And right after September 11th, you know, guys that didn't go downrange thought they missed it. Because the model was, yeah, I mean, we, we were really living off the legacy of those guys that uh, from Vietnam. Uh, in that era, there were flashpoints here and there, you know, maybe at Desert One for for Delta. And of course, we have Grenada and Panama. Yeah, but, but they were small. Yeah, but they yeah. were flashpoints. Yeah, they were flashpoints. It wasn't sustained combat operations. We hadn't had that since Vietnam. So uh, September 11th, I was already deployed. It was in my second week uh, of my second deployment. And we all thought immediately we were going to Afghanistan. And uh, that didn't happen right away. There was some confusion, figured things out. About two weeks later, though, we were on planes headed for the Middle East. And uh, we ended up, we thought we were going to Afghanistan. What we ended up doing was going to Kuwait and doing the shipboarding operations to enforce the UN embargo against Iraq. And the guys that had been doing that at SEAL Team 3, those guys went into Afghanistan. Um, and looking back, we thought we missed it. We're like, oh, man. And before September 11th, doing those shipboarding operations, Hey, that was good stuff because that was the only game in town. Yeah, exciting uh, stuff. Yeah. Everybody wanted to go to Afghanistan. So we thought we missed that part. And the guys that were, were home that were uh, stateside, they thought they missed it. They, they thought it was, the model was going to be something like a Mogadishu or a Grenada or a Panama, something like that, a flashpoint. And it was not the case. Those uh, those fears were unfounded. <laughs> 20 years later. Yeah. 20 yeah. years later. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I was in Afghanistan fairly soon thereafter. Uh, I got there in 2003, spring of 2003. Um, so I headed over there then. It was pretty quiet in 2003. Well, I mean, not for what I mean. I mean, I guess it all depends. Uh, but doing special operations mission and being the the uh, the strike force and, and going in, I got to learn a ton from guys who had already been there twice. And now I'm joining there, I'm joining them on some of their third deployments now over there. Because they're some of the first in. Uh, so I'm learning from them. And at the point I was I was enlisted before, uh, I was enlisted sniper. Uh, and then after that deployment where we did the shipboarding operations, came back, went to OCS for three months, officer candidate school, which is exactly like boot camp. You're folding underwear and t-shirts, but somehow that uh, uh, qualifies you to lead men in combat somehow. I'm not really <laughs> sure how that worked out, but uh, right back to the SEAL teams because I'd already been through BUDS. I'd been through SEAL qualification training. I'd been through through all of that stuff. So got to my team and then they shot me right down range to, to Afghanistan. So I learned a ton from these guys who had already done due to plunge down there. And they really met me along as a brand new junior officer. And uh, yeah, it, so I, I, I look back on that experience and it was very, very formative because it was still early, although I thought it was late at the time, but really it was early on and allowed me to then build on that foundation of the shipboardings that I'd done. So I'm glad I had that experience. Now here I am in Afghanistan. Then I turn around, I get to do a couple more little, uh, uh, not really deployments because they were short, but it's a couple hotspots around the world uh, and then go to Iraq and then turn around pretty quickly and go back to Iraq and go back to Iraq. Uh, so I got to 
firsthand see some of the missteps, some of the strategic level missteps, like deep application, uh, disbanding the Iraqi army, those yeah. two. Particular- Which was a big one, right? It's a big, big one. Big one. Yeah. And you know, we're trusting those guys at that at strategic level to make the good decisions up here. Uh, they're trusting us at the tactical level. And if we miss, we screw up down here at the tactical level, we are held accountable. But at strategic level, guess what? No accountability. And we continue to see that today. And of course, that finds its way into my novels. You can tell I was just going to say, <laughs> so, you know, I get to do it in a fictional sense. I get to hold Yeah, novel, there's, there's but, a tie uh, in there. Yeah, there's big a tie in. Because yeah. uh, you could see it. Um, and, you know, that's that's their only job is to make those good strategic level decisions. Yeah, and, I met a, I, 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 I have, I'm friends with one of the CIA uh, agents who was there, but officers who was there, and he was talking to the Iraqi army. Mm-hmm. And they were basically telling him like, hey, look, we didn't like Saddam Hussein either, right? But, you know, we're here, we're organized, we're organized in these little units, there's a lot of esprit de corps, if you guys pay us, we'll do anything you want us to do. We'll pick up garbage. We'll do whatever. And the decision was made. It came from Washington. And the representative who was there at the time was scared to death. He didn't know what was going on. And the decision was made to disband them. And he said at that point, I think it was in April uh, 93, he said up until that point that there was no insurgency. And then suddenly it was like a couple days later, it started up and it was the same guys. Yep. And I should write a book at some point, nonfiction called how to start uh, an insurgency. Yep. And just use that as the, uh, as the blueprint and write it off, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so it was, I mean, to see that, um, yeah, that certainly finds its way into the pages of my yes. novel. Yes. Uh, holding these guys accountable. I mean, all those names that we remember from World War II, we talked about World War II earlier, but all those names of the admirals and generals that we all remember uh, and, and associate with leading us to victory in World War II, uh, they weren't always in those positions. Uh, George Marshall fired quite a few people to find the right ones, uh, just like Lincoln did during the uh, during the Civil War. Grant. Um, but for some reason, after World War II, things started to change. Uh, I mean, and it's it, it, there is a tie to that military industrial complex for sure. Uh, and there was very little accountability after World War II going forward for strategic level leaders. Uh, and we continue to see that today with what happened in Afghanistan, something that's not even talked about anymore. It's I know. Not oh, We're not God. even a year out from it right now. Uh, we all saw it on TV and all those people failed upward. They failed forward that were responsible for that and uh so i hold them accountable in the pages of my novel so a lot of uh emotion come through i mean look it must be a very difficult painful experience to have been a guy on the ground right who's put your body on the line as well as the guys around you and then to see that the people who are leading you into these situations really don't know either they don't know what they're doing or they have some other kind of ulterior motives right yeah well they failed forward to get in those positions and uh so they're in those positions because well for to be completely honest they uh they didn't uh they didn't get too many duis they didn't pop positive on a drug test and they didn't beat too many pe- people up there's no uh, domestic violence <laughs> called to their homes those three reasons yeah and you can stay in the military for 20 30 years and just kind of coast and be very safe if you don't do those three things uh, so these people that keep failing forward uh they are 
probably not the ones that you want making these strategic level decisions that are going to affect your son and daughter when they're out there on the front line putting themselves in harm's way and uh, it's and it's more than just the guys that are out there it's the families it's people coming home with the post-traumatic stress and the traumatic brain injury and the vampire hours overseas and then the ambient and then you add some alcohol to that and you add some marital problems to that and it's not just for the person who comes home with that post-traumatic stress or the traumatic brain injury or missing an arm or missing a leg um, it's the families of those people so it's multi-generational and so it's that spouse yes that has to deal with it but it's those kids and their kids because it goes it, on for generations it yep. exactly and you can trace it back to people being in these these senior level positions that do things like disband the Iraqi army and debathification uh, and it can essentially create an insurgency uh, that then you have to deal with at the tactical level. So and in, uh, and in Afghanistan, I mean, I I, uh, I wrote a book called Jawbreaker with the you know the CIA officer great book, who, great book. who went in. Thank you, thank you. And and you know I did a lot of research and talked to a lot of people back then, and it was obvious that. In order to understand Afghanistan, it's a totally, it's not really a country. It's basically like a conglomerate of tribes, a loose association of tribes. Yeah. And, uh, and it was never really understood that way. It was never explained that way to the American people, right? Funny you should mention that because right yeah. here, I happen to have a copy of The Great Game. Yeah, uh, Peter, that, Hopkirk, uh, Peter Hopkirk. So exactly it. Yeah. Uh, all those guys had to do was just read this. Like you don't have to read the whole library. Uh, maybe start here. Very <laughs> readable, reads like a novel, but it's not. And you can take the lessons out of here and apply them to the current situation. And for whatever reason, and I think it's imperial imperial hubris is what I call it. Um, for whatever reason, they didn't have to go back to Genghis Khan. Didn't have to go back to Alexander the Great. They didn't even have to go back to what's talked about in the Great Game with uh, British and three British incursions. They could go have gone back to the Soviets, 79, 89. They could have looked at that. But for whatever reason, if they did look at that, they drew the wrong lessons and. Uh, you can there's a, a great book the uh, the afghanistan papers uh craig whitlock that uh takes uh what these senior level leaders were saying to congress and therefore the american people and their troops by default and then what they were saying privately in conversations that were recorded that they thought would never see the light of day because they were classified well lawsuits freedom of information act lawsuits from the washington post expose those and what he does is he puts what they were saying in front of congress and what they were saying in these classified conversations 180 out and uh, none of those guys was ever held to account the afghanistan papers are a set of internal documents from the special inspector general for afghanistan reconstruction obtained by the washington post through the freedom of information act the documents reveal that as early as 2003, high-ranking U.S. officials were generally of the opinion that the war was unwinnable, but kept this hidden from the public. Just as the Pentagon Papers changed the public's understanding of Vietnam, the Afghanistan Papers contained revelation after revelation from people who played a direct role in the war, from leaders in the White House and the Pentagon to soldiers and aid workers on the front lines. In unvarnished language, they admit that the U.S. government's strategies were a mess, that the nation-building project was a colossal failure, and that drugs and corruption gained a stranglehold on their allies in the Afghan government, and most importantly, that the U.S. government presented a distorted and sometimes entirely fabricated version of the facts to the public. They obviously had an enormous effect on people like Jack, who were commissioned to fight the war. 
It's incredible. I mean, I was a kid in, uh, my dad was in the State Department, so I grew up in that world. And I was a kid in, uh, in Vietnam in 1963, we went there. Wow. Um, and and uh, I was t- like 12 years old. I was the bat boy for the Special Forces softball team, right? No way, that's crazy. Yeah, we played out at Tonsonut Air Force Base. I used to hang out with this, these guys. I was like their mascot, right? And this is like 1963, 1964. They're out there fighting with the Special Forces guys, fighting with the Montagnards, right? Tribesmen. Oh, yeah. And they're saying, this is 63. There's no way we can win this war. This isn't a real, this isn't a war as we know it, right? Like people, you, you go up 20 miles outside of Saigon, people don't know who, what communism is, what democracy is. They have no idea where the United States is. They don't even know the name of their own president, right? All they want to do is grow rice like they have for 200 years and be left alone and raise their families. You know, they're, you know they have this kind of beautiful philosophy of life. And I would come home and I'd tell my father this, right? He was working at the State Department. He goes, oh, Ralph, those people don't know what, those guys don't know what they're talking about. Mm. I go, Dad, how could they not know what they're talking about? Like, we're here in Saigon, right? They're out there, like, fighting the war. And everybody he knew, including all the journalists, all the famous, you know, David Halberstram, all these guys from the New York Times, who were all friends of my father's that came over to the house, they all lock stock, believed the same thing, right? And you just go, where does this mindset, how does this mindset get formed like so quickly and it's it's almost like a universal mindset like we're 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 almost like brainwashed into this way of thinking and if you just go out like I did as a innocent kid hanging out with the people I used to work for the embassy uh, maintenance staff mm-hmm. I learned how to speak Vietnamese Wow. Half the guys were probably Viet Cong, but they left me alone because, <laughs> like, I was a good kid who was, like, painting the wall next to them, right? It's like, I, yeah. It's and you see it happen, and then you see your friends get drafted and go off to war, and cousins get killed and maimed, and you you just see the whole thing unfold in front of you. It's just, it's tragic, and we do it over and over again. Yeah, you know, we don't learn our lessons and, and we don't uh, take uh, our successes and failures and apply the lessons going forward as wisdom. We we think in two year election cycles, three year election or four year election cycles, eight year election cycles, maybe for the real deep thinkers among us. Uh, but we don't think long term and we don't apply lessons as wisdom going forward. because We're just too short sighted. And for whatever reason, and social media certainly doesn't help. Uh, we don't spend time in the pages of these books and lessons history they're out there and gives a foundation from which to make good decisions going forward instead we just retweet and we get outraged and we retweet things that were tweeted by someone who also didn't put in the time energy and effort to studying an issue and be thoughtful about it it's uh, yeah i try to remain hopeful in general but it's (laughs) it's very difficult sometimes you and and me uh, both yeah in regards to Vietnam, a great book, H.R. McMaster. He wrote it, I think when he was a major, I want to say, um, but uh, called Dereliction of Duty, where he talks about uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and really their failures during the Vietnam War. And it's a great 
uh, companion read if you read some other uh, books by Cohen at the same time. Um, there's some 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 great books that people can read and really draw some lessons, but also look at our current situation and say, geez, I wish these guys would read a little more. Yeah. Thank God for books, but people have to read them, right? You got to read them. Let's talk a little bit about this real incident that you experienced as a SEAL, as a SEAL sniper, and how that how you incorporated that into your fiction. Yeah, so most of the things that I incorporate in are the feelings and emotions behind certain events. So if my character, he gets ambushed, let's say on the streets of Los Angeles, I go back and think about what it was like to get ambushed in Baghdad in 2006. And then I take those feelings and emotions and I apply them to a completely fictional narrative. So I don't have to go out there and search out someone who was in an ambush and then talk to that person, interview them, and then have their answers go through a filter of maybe some biases or some uh, some other interviews that I may have done, movies I may have watched perhaps, and then translate that and put it into a fictional narrative. No, it's all coming from my heart and soul directly onto the page. Uh, so most of the time, it's really the feelings and emotions behind things. But in the first novel in particular, I did take uh, two incidents that happened and I can't remember now with, uh, the, with with memory going back, it was either the same day or it was a day apart, but it was an 11 day campaign with no break uh, to retake the city of Najaf. So all those days kind of blend together because it was constant fighting for 11 days. You'd grab a little kind of cat nap uh, now and again, if you found a place uh, where it was appropriate to do so as, the, as you held, let's say a, a line on a street and uh, you're bringing big army logistics train up with water and bullets and food, and then figure out your plan to move a couple blocks forward the next day. Uh, so it was, I think it was the same day, but I'm not positive. It could be a day apart, but 24 hours ish. Uh, and I'm in this, this town, Najaf, and I, I fictionalized it for the book by putting it in Fallujah, but in real life it was in Najaf. And uh, the, the rules of engagement as interpreted by the, uh, by the battalion commander was that the town of Najaf, old town Najaf, where the Imam Ali Mosque is located, which is one of the most uh, uh, significant sites in all of, of Islam. Um, they'd been given two weeks, I think it was, to, uh, to leave. And uh, Jay Shalmati militia, so Muqtada al-Sadr's militia was uh, was there. They were hunkered down. They were ready for a fight. And they were actually dressed. They almost had a uniform. I mean, they were dressed in black. I'll remember it. Uh, I'll never forget it. Not all of them, but a, but a lot of them. And uh, and we're going through the streets. We're in this battle, pushing them forward. And it's daylight. It's the most similar to what I thought combat would be like by, from watching World War II movies with my dad. Everything is everything was destroyed rubble everywhere we're calling in airstrikes we're pushing them through the through the streets in order to then take these elevated positions and hold while we brought water like i said and bullets and, and food up to us we had abrams tanks and bradley fighting vehicles and it was uh it was wild and i had a sniper but uh we'd leave some guys up in these positions and then uh some of us would go down and we'd push forward with uh sometimes it was elements of the national guard sometimes it was 27 cab it was kind of a there were a lot of different units there but 27 cab was was running the show and uh, I'll never forget this one. I got to this the edge of this street and there was a guy on a bike and he was just in the middle of the road and he was just, he was dressed like a Jay Shalmati militia guy. He yeah. was in black. In but black. It, was like, yeah. it was like somebody, you, like an, like, almost like an old man that you see at Venice Beach or something like that. <laughs> uh, in California, just kind of not a care in the world. Right. In the middle of this one street and I took this corner and he's in black. I mean, there's bullets flying in the battle. So you have to really you know, think quickly. But I uh, came off safe and, you know, had my finger right there and, and was like, something about this just doesn't look right. And a guy had taught me years and years ago, Army Special Forces sniper from Vietnam, who was part of Project Delta back then. Uh, he said, hey, if something doesn't look right, it's probably not. And 
And the way he meant it was that uh, if you see something, trust your instinct, trust that sixth sense. That's why we're here today. We had ancestors that trusted their sixth senses. They were good at the hunting and good at the fighting. That's the real the reason we're, we're here today. But in that case, it just didn't look right. It's about it. So I checked up and I radioed back. We had another line that was back there that was you know, more of an administrative line type thing, but we had vehicles and Humvees and like I said, the tanks and the Bradleys. And I said, hey, there's a guy coming on a bike. He's heading your direction. Uh, doesn't, I can't see a weapon, but uh, you know, I'll just let him know that, that he was coming and you know, pick him up and question him or whatever. And then, uh, then I ran to the other side of the street and just kept pushing and kept, and kept fighting. Uh, Separate incident is that I'm with my sniper team with four of them and we're in this courtyard. Things are chaos. We had come in in a Bradley fighting vehicle. The back had dropped down. And so you're kind of confused because it's moving around and you kind of, you know, on a piece of paper where or satellite imagery, where you're supposed to go and where you're getting dropped off. But as you're in these things and bullets are flying and hitting oh them and you're yeah. feeling, you can't see anything. And it's just like turning on these, you know, tracks or whatever. Must so be very kind of disorienting. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. And then the pack opens. And you step out into the bright daylight and there's bullets flying everywhere. You're kind of like, which way? Who's firing? Like, it's, it's confusing. And the echoes on the street is a little bit crazy, especially if you have your pro on that has your mic and your to your radios and, and that sort of a thing. Um, but so we were in this battle. And at one point we jump over this solid fence and we land in this courtyard and we all look at each other and we're like, this is insanity. We're like, hold, like you don't know what to do because you're in the middle of this fight and it's, no, you don't know when it's going to end. It's just like, you're just going. And, we looked at each other like, this is crazy. We're like, well, let's go. And then we hop over this fence. And the second the last guy dropped on the other side of that uh, wall, not a fence, a wall, a mortar hit exactly where we had, we had been standing just oh my God. Like oh exactly my God. direct hit where all of us had been. So in my head, I'm thinking if anything that day had made us just a few seconds uh, later, had it, we would have we would have been a direct hit by that mortar. And so the book, I put both of those two together, combined the shot not taken with James Reese, making the decision not to shoot, but had he, he would have been, would have been destroyed by, by mortar and killed. So, uh, so I kind of fictionalized it in that sense for the novel, but, but I shared that story with my guys going forward uh, after that, uh, going back to Iraq again, going to the Southern Philippines, going back to Iraq again after that. Um, I, I talked about it in the terms of, making decisions because sometimes you have a, a JAG, so a judge advocate general, a lawyer come in and give like a 30 minute brief on the rules of engagement. And you're kind of listening maybe, or you're thinking about, oh, geez, what else do I have to check off here before I go on deployment? I got to go to dental. I got to go to medical. I got to sign my will. Like there's all these things you have to do before you leave. Um, and so it really needs to be incorporated into, into the training. So I would talk to my guys about that and about them being the final decision maker. Uh, it starts up there with the president and works its way all the way down. And they are the final decision maker. When they enter a room or they're behind that scope and they're off safe and their fingers on the trigger, they are the final decision maker in that long chain. And it does fall on their shoulders. So it needs to be thought about beforehand. But, uh, but I talked about it in terms of how not taking that shot if I had taken that shot, I think I might not be sleeping too well these days, but I do sleep well and uh, because I didn't take that shot. As Jack explains, one can prepare for the physical rigors of combat and one can train one's body to withstand all kinds of harsh conditions. But preparing one's mind is a whole lot more challenging because it's the heightened feelings and emotions that result from combat that rip at you and sear into your brain. And it's the decisions you make in those vital seconds 
whether or not to pull the trigger and take a life or whether or not to let someone go and risk him or her setting off a hidden device that takes out you and your teammates or seeing a friend breathe his last breath that replay themselves over and over in your head. They are the moments that no one can prepare you for and will determine the future of your own life and others. Yeah, I was lucky. I was lucky that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew my, my path, my passion was writing, my mission was taking care of my family. So putting those two together to find purpose. Um, so I was very lucky I had that. A lot of people wander around a little bit, whether it's the military or professional sports or Olympic athletes that we have here in, in Park City where we, we live now, uh, or any transition in life, death of a loved one, divorce, any any sort of a job transition. But I don't know if it was my official job title to, uh, to counsel people that were getting out. It was just something that I did as a leader because uh, whether they were staying in or getting out, they were good people, and, uh, and I wanted to help them as best I possibly could. So, uh, and a lot of and a lot of people I saw not do that. I saw if someone was getting out; they kind of got pushed to the side. Like uh, even even if they spent ten years in, fifteen years in, and they decided to get out, they kind of got marginalized. And I, I noted that, and I never understood uh, the why. I guess it's probably because of the the buds quitting mentality. Like this guy, this guy's quitting. You even saw it twenty years for people. Like this guy's retiring; he, he's moving on. He's not quitting, you know. Uh, but some people, because it's just so instilled in you and buds that you don't ring that bell. Uh, but even like, hey, my my time here is done. It's time to move on. Uh, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. And hey, that's a, a good guy. I am 100% in their corner helping because I am in their chain of command and I'm their you know leader. Uh, and yeah, I got to do that with my friend, Jared Shaw. And uh, we knew each other mostly by reputation, but I uh, found out he was getting out. I asked him to come sit, come take a seat in the office and let's talk about what your plans are. And I just want to see if I could help. And and uh, he wanted to, to get into to something on the outside. And I introduced him to people in the private sector. And we talked about his transition plan and all that sort of a thing. And then then I thought nothing else of it. Uh, but uh, five years later, when my first novel was getting ready to come out, I got a call from Jared Shaw. And I, I was on the range at Thunder Ranch in Oregon doing some training up there, some pistol training, some rifle training. And I got this call. And uh, Jared says, hey, do you remember me? And I said, yeah, Jared, I remember you. And he said, do you remember what you did for me in the SEAL teams? And I did not. And he said, hey, you're the only person that took the time to sit me down in your office, talk to me about transition. You introduced me to people in the private sector. You checked back up on me and, and no one else did that. And I always wanted to thank you. And I, I said, no problem. And they said, I heard you have a book coming out. And I said, yeah, it's coming out. I got these galley copies and I found out what a galley was about two weeks prior. Right. Uh, like a rough draft, essentially, that goes out to reviewers for those listening. But uh, I said, I can send you this galley copy. And, uh, and he said, yeah, I'd like that, but I'd like to give it to a friend of mine. And uh, I said, who's that? And he said, Chris Pratt. So Chris got it and read it and called the next week and wanted to option it after he read it. So that's how the series came out. So it came from helping somebody. Wow, what and a beautiful story. Yeah. Without that, you know, this, this show wouldn't have been made. But, uh, but uh, when we talk about the transition side of the house, I also saw a lot of people that had a hard time leaving the military behind. And uh, after they were out, they would call back or come back in and want to give people tours of buds and, and all that sort of a thing, our training training center. Uh, and I saw them just have a hard time moving on. And uh, so I noted that. And I think it was very helpful, like I said, that I knew where I wanted to go, knew what I wanted to do. I had uh, I'd, uh, essentially built this foundation by reading all those books we talked about, uh, studying warfare, by these experiences that I happened to have on the battlefield. Uh, so I started writing during that last about year and a half that that I was in when I wasn't taking guys downrange anymore. Uh, 
started started writing. So I got very lucky in that I knew what I wanted to do. And it wasn't like the, oh, I saw an episode of Law and Order. I think I'll be a prosecutor. Like that sort of thing. And then you go to law school and then you show up. It's (laughs) not like what I thought. Where's the, where's the, like there's none of that. Uh, So, so I think you really, that's why I think these, like if there's transition programs out there that have mentorship built into them and internships built into them where you Internships are great. Yeah. Mentorship is a great thing. DA or whatever you're thinking of doing. And then you get to really see, oh, wow, I'm glad I did not spend X number of years in law school. Or no, I, I did the same thing when I was in, uh, I was going to go to law school and I, I spent a summer clerking at a law firm in Washington. And okay. when I saw what it was like, I was like, there's no way. I'm wow. not interested in yeah. sitting around haggling over words and contracts. That's not what I want to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they so, said, yeah. hey, Ralph, that's what it is. It's all corporate law. It's all contracts. The whole idea of getting into a courtroom, like most lawyers, never even walk into a courtroom. Yeah, I'm like, no, 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 that's not for me. Yeah, how valuable <laughs> is that? Spending that time doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely. I think that's valuable. I mean, I was lucky, like I said, that I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and I put in the work uh, already, and I continue to put in the work every day uh, to do what we call earning our trident in the SEAL teams every day. I mean, you want to be a better operator, a better leader every day. Uh, same thing with writing. I want to have this next book that I'm working on right now, book six. I want it to be better than book five. And I want to Absolutely. move the genre, even if it's just by a degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep yeah. it forward. No, well, um, that's what's fun about writing is it's it's you're always challenging yourself, right? Yeah, no, I love People it. I love say, it. Oh, oh, your last book was great. You're like, ah, okay, next one's going to be better. Gotta be. <laughs> a little it's bit got better just yeah. a little bit but yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah exactly exciting. i love every part of the process i love coming up with a title and coming up yeah. with a theme and then my one page executive summary that i then turn into an outline and then turn that into the book i love every part of that of that process um, like the joy and editing i heard a lot of authors talk about how they they don't like the editing i love the editing process I love yeah yeah and getting it to be as good as it can possibly be and uh i love every part of it same here same here you know, we talked earlier about in Terminal List, you know, one of the one of the things that comes through is your sort of like skepticism about the people who are making the decisions that put soldiers in dangerous places, right? And you went through that in both Afghanistan and Iraq, and you experienced the drawdown, the end of both of those wars. I mean, it sounds like you played a pretty prominent role in Iraq and the drawdown there. And then I'm sure you, like most of us, experienced what happened, that that kind of disgraceful exit we had from Afghanistan. What was yeah. that like for you? Yeah, I don't know how prominent it was. I mean, I was just trying to do the best job I possibly could for my guys. And at that you point, were on the ground, right? Yeah. Ground in Basra, southern Iraq. It was my first time down in southern Iraq. My other times had been uh, north in Mosul and then in Baghdad and Ramadi and Najaf. Um, so I hadn't really been down down south except for that last one. So uh, most Iranian-influenced section of Iraq through that drawdown. A lot of uncertainty involved if we we're staying or going. And, you know, if we were staying, what kind of a footprint would we have? And what would the relationship be like with host nation forces and the State Department? And so there was a, so that part, I mean, it was fascinating. It kept me busy, that's for sure. Um, but at the at the same time, I mean, you, uh, in these books, I, I do get to explore that. And uh, I got to see from this side, that withdrawal from Afghanistan. And, you know, there's this thing in von Klauschwitz, pointed to it as the most important attribute of a battlefield leader being common sense. It was also one of George Marshall, who we talked about earlier, General George Marshall, one of the attributes that he uh, identified as most important to a leader, uh, having some common sense. And that's why 
no matter if you had any sort of military experience at all, you, you didn't need one day of military experience. You didn't need to read one book on strategy, not one book on tactics, not read, watch one military themed movie. And you could watch that withdrawal from Afghanistan and say, why did we take our troops and put them from a tactically advantageous position in Bagram and put them in a tactically disadvantageous position down the pool? Why did we do that? You know why people are asking that question? Because they're applying common sense to the yeah. problem. It makes no uh, sense. Makes yeah. no sense. So our senior level leaders certainly give me a lot to work with as an author. Uh, <laughs> come up with, my, with my bad guys, and I don't see them letting up anytime soon. That's an understatement. That's an understatement. Yeah. I mean, Afghanistan has got to be the worst. I mean, Vietnam was bad. Iraq was bad. I mean, when you look back at the wars, you just go, "What the hell was that all about?" All that sacrifice. Don't even talk about Afghanistan anymore in the essentially in the media. It's just something not even talking. I know. I know. And the thing is, it's not like we destroyed bases and so on. We left it all behind. And it's like how how does this, as you say, how do you explain they don't even try to explain it to the American people. They just sort of yeah. flip the switch and turn you know, turn yeah. try to turn people's attention to something else. Turn but, our attention elsewhere, which is a lot easier to do in the, the days of, of social media now. Yeah, but we've got to stop and well, examine yeah. these things. We do, and that's what we owe the people who didn't make it home or the people that came back dealing with that post-traumatic stress we talked about, dealing with the traumatic brain injury, missing limbs. Uh, what we owe them, and more importantly, their families, is uh, that we take these lessons and apply them going forward as wisdom so their children don't have to deal with the repercussions of those same decisions by these same people that keep failing upward. That's what we owe uh, this next generation. And it gives them some kind of a basis of honor like to walk away with, right? I mean, we, we went through this in Vietnam when all these people were sort of treated like, you yeah. know, well, you guys failed. And, you know, they didn't fail. The leadership failed, right? They went out and they fought and they gave their limbs and their lives and their blood. And then they're the ones who were supposed to carry the burden afterwards. It's just like completely backwards and yeah. completely unfair. And that has absolutely got to stop, in my opinion. I know it's tough. It's tough. But, uh, you know, one of the ways that uh, we can do that is encourage our kids to put on those phones, stop tweeting, start reading and get back in the pages of these books and really draw out the lessons and uh, are building that foundation. Because, I mean, a lot of the foundation of a uh, of a uh, fulfilling life is is based on a foundation of reading and knowledge and the wisdom that's been passed along through those books and through those. Absolutely. Absolutely. People to read at every at every turn. Jack Carr is the epitome of the modern warrior. Someone who has lived the challenges of dirty, gritty, terrifying, high-tech combat in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. He's seen friends die and others maimed in wars that we later walked away from because our leaders decided the goals we first set out to achieve were flawed or are no longer worthy. That's a tremendous burden to ask any soldier to carry. He's also a highly skilled author, and like Ambrose Bierce and Walt Whitman in the American Civil War, or Ernest Hemingway and Eric Marie Remarque, who barely survived the horrors of World War I, or Kurt Vonnegut and James Jones, who fought and wrote about World War II, he serves the essential purpose of telling us what it was like to be a participant in wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And whether we like it or not, 
what they tell us about what we are as a people and a country today. We thank Jack Carr for his service, his courage, honesty, and skill as an author. We're honored that he's today's hero behind the headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And don't forget to tune into the next episode of Heroes Behind Headlines.